Welcome to season two of the Brand Safety Exchange podcast. I am your host Tiffany Xin Yuan, the president and co-founder of Oasis Consortium, a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing the cause of brand and user safety. Last season, we spoke with diverse stakeholders in brand and user safety. In this season, we are excited to take a much deeper dive into the community policies and the governmental actions that shape the way we engage online. Let's get started. Welcome to our Brand Safety Exchange show, and today I have our guest Julie Imong Grant, the Australian eSafety Commissioner, on the show. Welcome, Julie. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Julie, to start with, tell us about your role as the Australian eSafety Commissioner. Well, it's a fairly unique role. I'm for about five years the only role of its type in the world. Um, and I guess I should start by saying um, I'm often referred to as the poacher turned gamekeeper because I spent about 22 years inside the tech industry. And so, when the government looked for its new e-safety commissioner, it once wanted somebody who understood the inner workings of the technology industry, and I think it has helped me because I understand their language. I mean, government and、uh, the tech industry are two very different places, and sometimes you have to translate those languages.、Um, but it also helps because I truly understand what's going to work in terms of legislation and regulation, and what isn't. I think as a result, we've developed、um, a regulatory agency that's quite innovative and quite nimble. And、um, I try and use as much carrot、um, as I can, and only use the stick when I need to, because really, when you think about it,、um, collaboration is so important in terms of really tackling the biggest harms on the internet. And the the way that the online、uh, the uh, online safety、um, act and the e-safety commissioner came out actually.、Um, Was a result of a tragedy.、Um, in in the U.S.,、uh, there's、uh, America's Next Top Model and Tyra Banks.、Um, we had Australia's Next Top Model, and the host was、um, a, a beautiful woman named Charlotte Dawson, who was also very open about her mental health struggles.、Um, she was very active on Twitter and other social media sites. She had a very public nervous breakdown and went and got some help. She came out and she went back on Twitter and she was just receiving terrible, terrible abuse. You know, people saying that you know, you know, trolls that are you know obviously low on empathy and high on sadism and saying you know why don't you just put your head in the oven and finish off the job. So tragically, she ended up taking her own life. And while I was interviewing for a role at Twitter, it was referred to as the Twitter suicide and a huge petition. Was started that went to government and said, "Hey, and this is back in 2014. Enough is enough. You know, government has to stamp out cyberbullying." And so that's、uh, precisely what the government did. But they started they started narrowly.、Um, you know, nobody can argue that children、um, are more vulnerable than adults when it comes to、um, cyberbullying and online abuse. So they created the Children's eSafety Commissioner in 2015, and、um, we started the world first、uh, youth cyberbullying scheme,、um, which helps、um, children who are receiving serious cyberbullying content—anything that's threatening, humiliating, harassing, or intimidating—if they report it to、uh, a social media site and it doesn't come down, we service that safety net and we advocate on behalf of them or or their parents. 
And, and again, through collaboration, through informal means, we now have a 90% success rate in terms of getting that down because the volumes that the, the platforms are dealing with are immense. They miss culture, they miss context. When your content moderator has 30 seconds to a minute to look at a single tweet or a post and decide whether it contravenes the terms of service, you know, things are definitely going to fall through the cracks. So that's how we started. Um, we we um, also had a scheme called the online content scheme. Um, we are the hotline in, in Australia. We have a regulatory scheme that backs us. So the uh, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Canadian uh, Protection Center and the IWF in the UK are our sister organizations. So we take down child sexual abuse content as well as pro-terrorist content. I joined in 2017 and within three months, my remit uh, expanded to helping all people um, tackle, uh, tackle um, online abuse. And I was given a, a few more schemes, including one about around um, image-based abuse. In fact, when I was introduced as the new e-safety commissioner, they said, we want you to take on revenge porn. And I said, no, I'm not gonna call it that. Revenge for what, you know? Engaging in um, teenagers, engaging in sexting uh, or other forms of digital intimacy. You know, we need to focus on on terms that aren't inherently victim blaming and focus on the perpetrator action. So we refer to it for what it is, image-based abuse. So um, that was our start. I can tell you how we've evolved. We've got new legislation. We'll have strong powers there. But even as a regulator, I don't believe when you've got humans in the frame, we have to remember that these are platforms and technology that are stimulating social interaction, but it's humans that are misbehaving. So we are targeting humans, but um, we're, we're also trying to shift the responsibility back for what's happening on the platforms um, you know, to the companies themselves. So we, we're not only focused on the protection side of things, which is taking down the harmful content or issuing fines to perpetrators or platforms. We have to start with prevention um, at the front end to prevent the harms from happening in the first place. And, and I can talk about that. And then what we call proactive change on the other end, uh, which you'd be aware of, and that's around safety by design, but also getting ahead of tech trends and challenges and thinking about and anticipating technological risk and how platforms might be weaponized because technology is always going to outpace policy. And this is our way of just maybe not staying ahead, but at least keeping up. Gosh, there is so much to unpack. Thank you. It's a big role you're taking up. <laughs> well, it is. And of course, the internet is global and, uh, you know, national laws and sovereignty, um, it tends to be circumscribed nationally. Um, so, um, and all of our regulatory targets are overseas. And because we've had su such strong laws for so long around um, hosting online content here, you know, we're dealing with entities and websites that are based overseas. But as I said, we've got about a 90% success rate in terms of uh, the cyberbullying scheme. And, you know, we work closely every single day with the Twitters and the Facebooks and the Instagrams. You know, Instagram has helped us get serious cyberbullying content down in, in as quickly as 12, 12 minutes. Um, so again, there's cooperation there. When we're talking about image-based abuse, we have about an 85% success, success rate in terms of getting down intimate images and videos. Um, but we see more of these on kind of rogue porn sites um, and the like. And then when we're talking about the realm of pro-terrorist content and child sexual abuse material, uh, you know, big concern is um, that we're working with permissive hosting environments. So in, 
countries where they don't have strong laws to prevent this. And I have to say the, the US is one of those most permissive uh, hosting environments. And that's where we see some of the worst score sites and child sexual abuse sites. Um, we'd probably put France, Netherlands, and uh, the Ukraine in, in those categories, and, and then some of the territories um, in the Caribbean. <laughs> Uh, uh, let's 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 dive in. So so um, what what are you, what are your current goals or uh, KPIs to define oh, success? <laughs> that's right. Well, yeah. Or or, or um, what is it? OKRs or um, KPIs? How, how do well, you define listen, for you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, our, our our mission and vision is to help Australians have safer, more positive experiences online. So I try and take a really, really pragmatic approach. We're not trying to demonize technology, but we want our citizens to harness the benefits and we want to help them mitigate the risks. So, um, you know, we just had some really stunning data. I just did a speech for the World Anti-Bullying Forum. Um, and so I told you that, you know, starting with education and prevention is really important. We've, you know, even when you're taking about talking down, taking down content, which is a great service we provide our citizens, because the quicker we get it down, the more mental and emotional distress we relieve. But you're always going to be playing a game of whack-a-mole, and that's always going to be reactive because these are complaints-based schemes. Um, and you know, a small organization like ours is not going to go to war with the internet and try and take all the hate speech. You know, I, that's that's not how we do things. We are also trying to balance a range of fundamental rights. So the best thing we can do is arm our citizens um, with the with the best information possible about how they can utilize user empowerment tools and protect themselves. So we have got an in-house research team. Uh, we've got a range of programs. We've got a program for parents of under fives because we know that um, 80, 80 4% of two-year-olds are given access to a digital device. And by the time they're four years old, 94% of kids have access. So parents need to be the front line of defense. And the minute they're handing over that digital device, you know, it's it's not a passive entertainment mechanism like the uh, TV that our parents used to put us in front of is. They have to um, they have to engage in their kids' online lives like they do their everyday lives and set parental controls. They can't set and forget, and they need to put them in 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 plain view. But we teach them to teach the kids um, to be safe, to be kind, to ask for help, and to make good choices. Then when they get into the school age years, we work a lot with educators um, and um, online safety is now being more deeply embedded into the curriculum. And we're trying to get them to teach the four R's of the digital age beyond reading, writing and arithmetic because you know, technology is going to be integrated into the, their lives early. So they need to learn respect and responsibility. We need to help them build their digital resilience because it's not a matter of if they'll you know, encounter something online is when and um, also build critical reasoning skills. And we need critical reasoning skills for so many reasons. Disinformation, uh, is this a scam? Is this an imposter account? Is somebody trying to groom me? Um, is this really a violent you know, sec uh, porn video? Um, what a respectful relationship looks like. So uh, you know, critical reasoning skills and helping kids discern fact from fiction is going to be an increasingly important skill. So we start there. We even have a program called Be Connected, which is for seniors. Um, 
the actually the most underrepresented population online in in Australia are seniors over the age of 65. Um, they're a much more trusting generation. Um, they may not have um, you know had a lot of technology in the workplace, um, but we certainly saw with COVID um, when they when elder elderly people were particularly vulnerable that that mental impact of social isolation was really hard on them. Um, so, you know, we're teaching them how to bank safely online. We're, we're teaching them um, how to shop safely online. We're teaching them how to do basic video conferencing. Um, and for so many older people, it's revelatory. And then we have programs that are kind of more what we would call pointy end. So we have a program called eSafety Women because we know that 99% of women who are experiencing domestic and family violence also experience technology facilitated abuse, which is an extension of the coercion, surveillance and control um, that um, you know, the partners or former partners are trying to um, you know, control, them, control them with. And so we've seen you know, surveillance devices and teddy bears and under prams and in walls. We've even seen cars programmed to stall when a woman leaves, um, you know, more than a kilometer beyond her household. So, um, and just think of um, IoT devices and um, how those could be weaponized in a home, which is meant to be a haven for a person. So prevention is really, really important. Yeah, I I love the fact that you really look at the space, uh, you know, from 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 the segments perspective, right? You focus on children, you focus on women, you focus on you know senior people, and I love you kept talking about idea of, uh, of prevention, um, and I know safety by design is a big deal uh, in a lot of things you're doing. Can you talk uh, with us about your safety by design initiative? Yeah, and so I think. I think to me, safety by design is what we call proactive and systemic change. Um, you know, we're, we we can't just put a bandaid on a gaping wound. <laughs> we need more like a tourniquet. But but I mean, I think about um, think about 55 years ago when a young unknown lawyer and activist named Ralph Nader um, wrote a book called Unsafe at Any Speed. It was about the Chevrolet Corvair, and he connected the dots between um, vehicle accountability, tra traffic fatalities, and embedding of safety protections like seatbelts into the cars. At that time, the car manufacturing industry pushed back. They didn't want to embed seatbelts. They didn't want to have to inv invest in safety. But of course, this sort of prompted a whole new um, era of vehicle regulation, which are now governed by international standards. And today we get into a car and we take for granted that the, you know, there are going to be seatbelts that are embedded, that the airbags are going to deploy, that we're going to have anti-lock brakes. More than that, car manufacturers actually have safety ratings and they compete and differentiate against these safety features. So, you know, even things that seem kind of shiny and new, like rear view um, mirrors and um, lane change um, alerts, um, they seem like premium features, they'll become de, de rigor and, you know, the innovation will need to happen. So I see a lot of corollaries between this and where the technology industry is in terms of the um, where they are with um, global regulation right now. So the way that, you know, we we choose to regulate is we I see safety by design as just being good business sense. And we're trying to 
put an innovation and investment lens onto this. So, I mean, it's, it's really the same principle. Um, you know, assess your risk at the front end. Um, if you've, you know, and, and you as the company are going to be best placed to um, determine which safety protections um, are the right ones for your, pro for your product or your service, but do the work up front, embed the protection and bake it in at the front end rather than waiting for some tech wreck moment to happen. Um, and, and this is sadly what we've seen too much of over the past decade. It takes a huge regulatory revenue or reputational threat for companies to react. Um, and so safety by design was something I actually brought to Microsoft, my former employer over 10 years ago. And um, uh, I was in a division called trustworthy computing at the time. And you know, if you even looked at, there are about four people focused on security and, you know, another hundred focused on privacy. <laughs> there were like 10 of us doing online safety. And that was seen as the, the soft, the sort of the softer discipline. And I remember pitching, you know, to the executives, um, hey, you're doing security reviews and privacy reviews. Why don't we look about how we can disrupt personal harms? Um, and so they had me go through this whole process of defining what is trust and safety and how is it different? And, you know, in a very crude way, I just said, hey, it is about personal harms that are created when your platforms, you know, create social interaction. Whereas, you know, security tends to be about more about processes and, and, and technologies and securing the infrastructure. And you could argue that privacy and data protection is about protecting the data and, you know, important areas like access and consent and what you're doing with people's data and being open and transparent about that. But this is really about preventing things like, um, you know, online bullying and child sexual exploitation and grooming. And, you know, it's interesting because at the time they said, well, we're becoming an enterprise company. This is not really for us. We're not going to own a social media company. This was probably before LinkedIn was a twinkle in their eye. But I pointed out at the time that, you know, Xbox Live, you know, 10 years ago was a very, very toxic environment. Gaming was a lot more toxic. And what's been great is to see how the gaming, online gaming industry is really leaning into safety by design and is, is moving forward and being very innovative in the space because they get that if they don't um, have a, um, if they have a toxic community, then people will walk and they'll go to the next game. Um, and who wants to be griefed online? You, you're doing, you know, there's a sense of uh, competition and heat of the moment, but you, you don't want it to be, um, you know, a, a dangerous place. Um, same thing about Skype at the time. It was the primary vector for live stream child sexual abuse, and it still is today. So no company is a total pillar of virtue when it comes to safety by design, but we knew that we needed to do this with industry rather than to industry. And so uh, we went on the journey with industry to develop a set of three principles. That took about nine months. We started out with four and we ended up with, you know, what is service provider responsibility? What does good user empowerment and autonomy look like? And then how can we just be more radical about transparency and accountability rather than being sort of selective about transparency? Um, so there are lots of different ideas around that, of course, principles. Um, and so a number of the big players signed off on it, you know, everyone from Snap to Google to, to Twitter, um, um, Nextdoor uh, really late, late, uh, leaned in, Ubo, um, a, a broad range of, of companies. And it's really great to see them living those values 
And um, because I, I think we need to get away from that place where we're just, um, something's gone wrong online. So we're gonna send out a press release about you know a great new feature. Every time a company does that, I go, hey, that is great. We're always gonna encourage you to innovate and try new things. But can you tell me in three months and six months, what was the uptake? Uh, what was the impact? And what do you engage, you know, what do you gauge the efficacy to be? Because you never see that. It's it's like, let's just put this out. But we, you know, and, and you know this more than anyone else as an expert in brand safety. You've got to fix the fundamentals first before you start evangelizing how, how safe your product is. You have to fix the fundamentals and you've got to build it in for the ground from the ground up. And it's gotta be throughout the life cycle of the product. So it's, you know, safety by design is not an endpoint, it's a continuous journey. And I, I think a lot of companies really, really get that. So, so that's what it is. Um, we took another 18 months because we, there was frankly a little bit of principles fatigue, Tiffany. Um, we had, you know, voluntary child sexual abuse principles and, you know, um, age appropriate design codes and a whole range of competing principles and principles framework principles based frameworks are great but only if they're implemented. So we thought, you know what, there's nothing out there in the market that could tell particularly a startup, but, but even a, a mid-tier enterprise company, um, what this looks like and how you inculcate safety throughout the, the um, really the culture and the ethos of the company. Um, and it has to start with leadership. Um, you can't tell me that if um, Mark Zuckerberg or Sundar Pichai said, we're gonna put everything we have into safety um, with the intellectual capability, the access to technology tools, the vast financial resources, they can make these very safe and still profitable places to be. And I saw this with my own eyes when I was at Microsoft back in about 2000, 2001, when the trustworthy computing initiative was kicked off. Bill Gates sent a proclamation to everybody and to every engineer and product designer and said, you're getting off every project and we are we are recoding every single line of Windows code. We're gonna code out all of the vulnerabilities. I don't know if you can even think back to 21 years ago when you know, riddles are, Windows was con con considered to be riddled with safety vulnerabilities. You, you really don't, you know, obviously you have the occasional um, <laughs> ransomware or hack, but you, you don't think about Microsoft in the same way you think of them as um, you know a very um, secure um, trustworthy enterprise company and that took years to build and years of consistent um, focus and um, resource so yeah it's so true what you're you're saying it's not only just the product the process it really comes down to the priority and the people um, and then not until it is in your DNA uh, for your company, everything uh, is temporal, is, uh, is less long lasting. So, so I, I love that you mentioned that. And I think it's related to the fact that you, you have, you have the, the mileage and the experience as a, as a technologist before, before being a regulator. Maybe I'm the roadkill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, to that point, you should share with us um, on experience and to your point, I, I love what you just said, you know, rather than to do to the private sectors or to the platforms, you'd rather do with them. So share with us the, the lessons you've learned, what worked and what didn't work um, when it comes to 
collaborating with the private sector to, to push for the e-safety? Well, um, you know, again, I think there's a lot of goodwill in, in the sector. Um, you know, I just think about, you know, all the tech employees that are kind of doing the walkouts and are pushing uh, against um, their leadership and, you know, and, 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 you know, kudos to Francis Haugen and the other whistleblowers, but I always felt like I was a safety antagonist within the companies I worked in and was always pushing them to do more and better. And, um, you know, I ultimately left both, both Microsoft and Twitter because I didn't feel that I, you know, I felt like they had stopped innovating or investing in safety in a way that I felt that I could um, really defend them because I was kind of on the front lines as, you know, this, this safety and public policy base um, for, for both of the, the companies. Um, and, you know, I think one of the keys to success in life is knowing when it's time to go. Um, I had wonderful experiences at both of those companies. I, I still have wonderful friendships with people there. I mean, you know, it, it's easy to vilify an entity or even a CEO, but companies are made up of really good people um, who feel like you do and I do. Like, we joined the technology industry because we believed in the promise while I was there, I certainly saw some of the perils um, of technology. So I guess I, I understood, I understand the levers and I understood if it was just a punitive thing where you're hitting companies on the head for things that go wrong rather than incentivizing them to do better. Um, and for really actually celebrating um, the innovations they do that work well. And so you'll, you'll see if you even take a spin through our safety by design assessment tools, we've got two. Um, we've got one for um, early stage companies and startups um, for up to 49 employees. It takes an hour. Um, and uh, we've had some, so I think it's well worth the, the you know, time and investment. Um, and it, you know, takes each uh, company through a base of questions about their processes and their systems. And it spits out what we, uh, you know, a safety health check and also a recommendation of things to do. But what we tried to do was, Make sure it's that the the uh, the startup one is a lot more educative. So we explain what is an online harm, how does it manifest, how have we seen platforms be weaponized, so they can think actively about how they engineer out that misuse or that that use case. And as you know, we could sit and we could threat model for for years and years, and we still wouldn't be able to anticipate the creative ways that humans might misuse our technologies. So I, I think we have to keep keep that that in mind. Um, but a, a number of companies have, have taken their CEOs and their whole leadership team through it, just so through the process so that they kind of understand how this this um, this manifests. Um, but throughout the tools, we're surfacing up best practice. You know, this is how Yubo uh, did it here, and this is how Facebook tackled this issue. And this is this is how you know not how Nextdoor's algorithm works, but this is this is how they've really built um, safety and um, you know community into their DNA. Um, this is how they evaluate that this person is really a neighbor. Um, so so that's really important. I think the other thing that we've done is we've realized that you know so often regulators and governments are focusing on the uh, the company itself, but there's a vast ecosystem as you would know around the technology companies. So we're also targeting them. We thought, gosh, you know, often when there's a startup company, you know, 
an entrepreneur or a founder or technologist has a great idea. They just want to be able to bring that to market. They're not thinking about all the things that are going to go wrong. Who are the adults in the room? The experience. They're the VCs. They're the investors. Um, and of course, we've seen an ESG effort in the VC and investment space to mitigate their own risk, but also to invest ethically. So we started talking to a number of VCs investment companies. What would be light touch enough for you um, so that when you have you know, your Series A funding is happening, that you could have them do a little checklist so that they're actively thinking about how their platforms might be weaponized or using the assessment tools. We've also developed some due diligence clauses that they can build into their contracts. So if we're going to give you money for this, you're going to be mindful about um, what could go wrong. And you know, and I, I hate I hate to use Zoom as an example because, gosh, I've seen over the past two years they've made huge bounds and um, huge investments in safety, privacy, and security. But they're that perfect cautionary tale. You know, in December 2019, I think they had 10 million daily active users. They scaled beautifully. Um, through to March and April, I think in March uh, 2020, they had, they had 200 million daily active users, and then the following month it was 300 million, and then you started getting the Zoom bombing attacks, and I think it was the New York State Department of Education that first said, uh, you're not going to be teaching on this platform anymore, and they went into um, crisis mode, and they took things offline, and um, anyway, they've made a lot of fixes, they're making lots and lots of investments. But that tech rec moment didn't have to happen. I mean, I can't even use Zoom on, I have to do a few little hacks on my government computer because of firewalls. So how do you calculate that loss of trust, that loss, that loss of future potential customers um, that, that remember that time and don't know what a great intuitive product it is? And it was really interesting to see Ed, Ed Jan, the, um, the CEO to come, come out soon after that and say, gosh, I hadn't even thought about online harassment until this happened. And you thought, think, how do you, how do you build a video conferencing service and, and not think about what people could do to each other when they're interacting? But again, that's not the mindset. Yeah, there is so much awareness uh, work to do. Um, you know, for the space we're working, um, it's... Um, uh, it's impossible for me to talk with a regulator without talking about regulation. Um, I want to spend some time for you to explain to our audience um, what the Enhancing Online Safety Act of 2015 uh, is and how that came into existence. Um, and were there any hurdles when you try to um, enforce the act, the act within Australia? Um. You know, it's interesting. So when the act came into place in 2015, you know, there was some resistance because no government had tried it before. And, you know, a number of the companies were saying, you know, we're going to have to pull out of Australia. This is going to quash innovation. It's going to quash freedom of expression. None of that's happened. Um, and I have to say that I'm really proud that we're able to provide our citizens services that no other country in the world currently provides, um, that we're helping children get cyberbullying content taken down. And in fact, the numbers that we have just seen, um, we do a youth, youth survey every two years. And in 2017, we saw that, that young people weren't using blocking, muting, 
um, and um, reporting functions. Um, I think only 50, 55% were talking to a trusted adult when things went wrong online. Um, we've, we've had a number of different education campaigns um, um, just to encourage young people to engage in help seeking, but also we had the some, uh, start the chat campaign um, for parents to get their kids more engaged or get their, yeah, start open conversations about online safety and get involved in their kids' online lives. Um, we've seen a 20 point increase in four years um, of the number of kids that are actually talking to their parents when things go wrong online. And we have more parents supporting their kids when they come to us, which is great because you're providing um, all that wraparound support that's really um, an emotional support that these kids are experiencing. Um, when they're being excluded or rumors are being started about them. Um, and, you know, we don't always stop at just taking down the content. We know that, you know, one in five kids has been cyberbullied. The average age is 14, but we get reports from kids as young as eight. Um, and it, but it tends to be peer to peer. So if there's conflict happening within the school gates, it's, likely the the root of what's happening online and of course we know that cyberbullying is more insidious because kids don't leave it at the school gate it's now in that little supercomputer that we put in their pocket and it follows them into their homes into their bedrooms um, to all hours of the night and the other thing that's in, you know, insidious about it is it's very visible to one's peers uh, particularly when they're being humiliated or excluded but it's often hidden to adults because um, they're not on SNAP or um, on Ubo, we hope. <laughs> um, so, um, so being able to provide this service is incredible. Being able to get intimate images and videos um, taken down. We have some people that come to us with 400 separate URLs. So a, a former partner was that dedicated to humiliating them with their friends and their peers. And of course, the trauma of this doesn't go away. Um, once you get the the content uh, taken taken down, um, you know. So being able to tackle these things, you know, knowing, gosh, seeing what we see with kids experiencing child sexual abuse and knowing that it follows them their entire lives, that when we can take that content down and reduce the ongoing trauma that they might experience is incredibly rewarding. So we have new legislation. Um, and, and I, I think we're, we're kind of maturing as an organization. When I came in in 2017, we had about 35 people. Um, we have about 200 people today. Uh, I'll have about 40 investigators. Um, and so what we've, we've seen, you know, tectonic shifts in the way that kids are using technology and the way technology works. So when the legislation was developed in 2015, it was mostly focusing on social media. But we know kids aren't using social media the same way. You know, about a third of our cyberbullying reports are now happening to kids on private private um, messaging apps and, and DMs. Um, that's how they're um, being abused. Um, that's what we see within um, technology facilitated abuse with domestic violence victims on other forms of online harassment. Um, they're, they're experiencing harm on dating sites. They're experiencing harms on online gaming platforms. So none of these were covered before. And again, we're taking this ecosystem approach, rec recognizing that um, if Google and Bing don't de-index really harmful content, um, then that's allowed to continue to perpetuate. 
um, that the app stores, frankly, have a role to play as as a bottle, bottle bottleneck. And I, I guess we did see some deep um, creative deplatforming around um, January 6th in the Capitol siege. But, you know, nobody's been holding the app stores accountable for rogue platforms that might be hosted um, on their their stores. So it's it's very broad. Um, we have something called the basic online safety expectations that looks at safety by design and basically says to companies, these are the basic safety standards we expect you to live by. Um, and if you don't, or if we cannot tell that you are enforcing your own you know, terms of service and standards consistently and fairly, then I can compel transparency reports. So you know, I can start to ask those questions, well, how how does that safety feature um, actually work and is it really working? Or I can ask questions about how are you dealing with this really wicked problem like recidivism on your platforms? You know, are you really enforcing your real names policy? Um, are you um, picking up signals when high volume cross-platform attacks or pylons are happening on a pers uh, particular person? And what are you doing um, to address that? So. Um, a broad set of powers. We've got codes. Um, we had a lot, um, and then the, the big thing is that we've got a new, um, a serious adult cyber abuse scheme. So for the first time anywhere in the world, if a person, it's at a very high threshold because we need to balance freedom of expression and freedom of opinion. You know, it's not just going to be about name calling or even character assass assassination. This is serious cyber abuse with the intent to harm. So we are drawing that line. You see a lot of companies saying, well, how do you even tell what's harmful? Well, we have to investigate every report that comes into us and and, and look at all the facts. And um, is it menacing, harassing, and offensive in every case? And is there serious intent to cause harm? So, because um, I've been saying for a long time, you know, unbridled freedom of expression um, in some ways is a misnomer. Um, if people use that free expression excuse to silence voices, which we see with minorities and women, um, anyone from diverse communities, LGBTQI, here, Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander people, those with a disability, they're three times more likely to be targeted with online hate than, you know, an everyday, um, oh, I, sorry, middle-aged Caucasian male. Um, and um, they deserve to be protected because too many people are self-censoring now because if they say what they want to say, so really unbridled freedom of expression can suppress freedom of expression if it, it turns into the realm of, of, of abuse. And that's what this scheme seeks to do. It's, it's, um, it's you know, harmful content targeting a specific Australian individual. So again, this is not going to be removing content um, en masse. Um, it's it's going to be very surgical, but we're starting slowly so we can see how it works and make sure that we get the thresholds right. And that's what's really important with legisl legislation in this space. It needs to be flexible. Um, it needs to be principles based. Um, but it, um, you know, we want to get those fundamental balances right. And I think this is the, the key for the, the, the um, tech sector in the future. How are they going to balance, you know, the privacy and the data protection of individuals with the protection um, of children from child sexual abuse material. You know, there's a, a big polarizing debate around encryption and end-to-end -end encryption. I don't see the two 
as totally mutually exclusive. Um, but the, the same goes for, you know, how do you balance freedom of expression with a person's right to be free from online violence? So we can't just sort of throw the talon and say, it's too hard to decide what's harmful. No, we have to draw a line somewhere and then, and then act and people cannot abuse with impunity. And I think we hope that there's a deterrent effect here too, that you can't, um, there, there, um, you know, there are significant fines um, if you're um, engaging in serious adult cyber abuse and you, I send you a notice and you refuse to take it down or you refuse to apologize. Thank you, Julie. Um, we talked about so far the approach, the measures, the initiatives of the office. We talked about how you partner with the platforms and create the ecosystem to push forward the agenda for e-safety. We talk about how you enforce um, domestically deregulations. I think the last uh, question I want to touch upon with you is how you foster the global alliances. I've seen you very active um, and present at the global stage um, about this topic. And you also alluded to different countries and regions have different levels of um, permissiveness uh, to the topic. So how you reconcile and collaborate with different countries on this topic? Yeah, no, I mean, it's really, really challenging because, of course, every country is going to have its own cultural context, its own, um, you know, regulatory environments. Um, you know, we, you know, as I said earlier, the Internet is global um, and, you know, company or country laws tend to be uh, local or national. Um, but I do think if we're not kind of what we're trying to do is share our learnings, what's worked and what hasn't. Um, because we don't want a global splinter net of conflicting regulation either. And of course, we're a democratic country that prizes um, principles like freedom of expression and freedom of opinion. So we're taking a very balanced, what I would consider a light touch approach. Um, and so we're trying to encourage like-minded countries to do so. And our prime minister last week just brought um, a set of safety by design type norms to the G20. Um, that was agreed to um, with the, the leaders. Um, safety by design is now um, a principle that's embedded as, as a fundamental corporate responsibility um, requirement in the G7, safer internet principles. So it's starting to take off, um, but um, you know, we, we don't always think taking the sledgehammer to the nut is is the right approach and we won't be able to influence everyone, but um, we, you know, we've worked with the Irish for the past two years um, in, in their shaping their online safety commissioner. They're getting close to finalizing their legislation. Um, the Canadians within the next 90 days are going to look at legislation to create an online safety commissioner. And they've been looking closely at our model. Fiji has an online safety commissioner. We've got a formal MOU. I'll be traveling to the UK for the G7. So we'll be meeting with um, Ofcom, who, you know, they're, they're um, really beefing up to, to have some strong um, online harms powers. We'll be talking to the EU. So, um, you know, we, we do want to align and make sure that, that, that the regulations aren't so um, disparate and out of whack that companies can't comply with them. So, um, you know, Countries are going to do um, 
you know, what's in their best interest, but these multilateral fora are really important. You know, we took the um, TVEC, which is the um, terrorist and violent extremism principles um, that was um, organized by the OECD. I'm part of the We Protect Global Alliance, which is another uh, multi-stakeholder forum. I'm proud to serve on their board. Um, because one, one of the other things I've sort of noticed as the industries come under fire is they're starting to pull out a little bit of the multilateral forum fora where they get a lot of pressure into and informing their own industry bodies own, uh, only you know gift ct is an example of that and and that actually makes sense because there's they're sharing very very sensitive um date you know terrorist data um they've just formed the the technology coalition um and you know one of the key areas there is to tackle child sexual exploitation i think those are great initiatives but just having industry only organizations and not engaging with the broader community, with the advocacy community, with academics, with governments is not ultimately going to serve them well. They need to do both. Thank you so much, Julie. This is such a good note to end on. Thank you for all the great work um, you are doing to push forward this, um, this big, big agenda. Thank you for coming on the show as well. Thank you, Tiffany, and thank you for all of your incredible work and your advocacy. Thank you, Julie. And that's our episode. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And I encourage you to follow the rest of the episodes in this season, where we ask what companies and governments are doing and can do to make Web3 a safer and more inclusive place. If you want to join our movement, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and contact us through our website.